I, I heard about a man. There was a man. I heard about this man, and he was in a dark restaurant. It was really dark. And uh, he noticed that there was uh, some ladies, but he couldn't make out their faces or couldn't hardly make out you know, who they were. And he, he whispered over the, over the uh, section there. He said, hey, would you like to hear a blonde joke? And uh, one lady responded, and she said, uh, before you tell me a blonde joke, I have to tell you that I'm blonde, and I'm six feet in height, and I'm a um, professional bodybuilder. And on my right is a lady that's also blonde, and she's six foot two, and she's a professional wrestler. And on my left is another lady that's Blonde, and she is six foot five, and she is a world champion kung fu person. Do you still want to tell me your story? The blonde joke. He thought about it for a moment, and he finally said, No. Um, if I'm going to have to explain it three times. <laughs> I know, they're all corny, I know that. Um, th there are lots of things, there are lots of things that are unexplainable. For example, for example, how anger can come on us and how it can be so uncontrollable in a person's life. This morning we're going to be talking about anger. And the Bible indicates that you can be angry and sin not. If you don't get anything else this morning, understand that. The initial feelings of anger are not wrong or right. They're just there. But it's what we do with those feelings that can become a real problem. And anger can become a terrible, terrible thing. It, it's crippling at times. One reason that it is that way is because it's unpredictable. It can be honest before we know it. And it can wear many different faces. Sometimes it's irritation. Sometimes it's blurting out things that we wish that we had not said or not blurted out. Sometimes it takes the form of actions, breaking plates, uh, breaking the windows. Uh, uh, sometimes it takes the form of physical abuse, hitting or slapping or even murder. A number of years ago, there was a 30-plus-year-old uh, Ph.D. student at the University of California in Berkeley. And this fellow kept getting flunked. He got, kept getting uh, fa uh, failing, failing, failing. They wouldn't grant his Ph.D. degree. Why? Well, there was one primary professor who kept uh, blocking this man from getting his doctorate degree. And he kept failing this man and failing this man and failing him. And finally, this slow burn turned into a white-knuckled uh, rage. And he took a large ball-peen hammer as a professor exited his office and hit him in the head and hit him in the head and hit him in the head and, and, uh, and killed him and beat his uh, skull in. Somebody writes, and I'm quoting, uncontrolled anger, bottom line, is a choice that easily, easily can become a habit. Did you know that? Uncontrolled anger can become a habit. It can become a way of life. The way we react to certain situations, somebody can just set us off and we explode and we just be, it can become a habit, this person writes. 
It's a learned reaction to frustration in which you behave in ways you would rather not. In fact, severe anger is a form of insanity. You are insane whenever you are not in control of your behavior. Therefore, when you are angry and out of control, you are temporarily insane. End of quote. This leads me to my first point, and this leads me back to our story that we've been in for some time in 1 Samuel. We're talking about this life of David. And I want you to understand, number one this morning, do you understand? It's a very simple point, but we need to be reminded of this on a regular basis. Do understand that uncontrolled anger, uncontrolled anger can have terrible, terrible consequences. And some of us grew up in homes where either a father or a mother or perhaps a grandfather or a grandmother, they were on the cake, so to speak, the TNT cake, all the time. You were like walking on eggshells. And you know how terrible and awful that was being around an angry person. And it can happen among Christian people and in Christian people's lives as well. So do understand that uncontrolled anger can have terrible, terrible consequences. Therefore, we must learn to control it, and we can control it. We can control it. And you say, what are you talking about, Pastor Ron? When you're in the middle of an argument, and it's heated, and you're angry, and all of a sudden you're with your spouse, and you guys are getting into Donnybrook, so to speak. It never happened to you? It's happened, right? It's happened. You're in a Donnybrook, or you're in a Donnybrook with one of your teenagers, or whatever it may be, and all of a sudden the phone rings. It's for you, Dad. It's for you, Mom. What happens? Oh, hello. You can't tell me that you can't control that anger. You can control it. You weren't born that. Anger is a learned response to frustration. And uh, David is this remarkable young man that we've been talking about for a number of weeks, who we saw last week. Remember, David modeled extreme patience David is in the cave of the Engedi. He's hidden back there with his men, and all of a sudden his mortal enemy, the King Saul, has to answer the nature, nature's call, and he's very vulnerable, and his men are whispering to him. They're saying, David, this is your opportune time. God has put your mortal enemy in your path. Slit his throat. Take revenge upon him. And David exercised extreme patience in the cave of the Engedi, the cave of the gates, goats, in this particular situation, he said, I'm not going to lift my hand against God's anointed. But in today's scripture, we read that he became temporarily, temporarily insane with anger and was ready to commit murder. What do we do with those intense feelings of anger? Well, let me set the background for us. Saul uh, was still king, and now David has 600 guerrilla fighters and warriors. And uh, they had been behind the scenes. And you see, they had been fighting various wild tribes, the Philistines and other groups of individuals and peoples. Remember, he's in the wilderness. And, and there are Israelite people that he has been defending. And he's been defending these uh, waylaid, these posts, these villages that are on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And they're often uh, inhabited by a bunch of... Um, sheep herders, and, and he knows all about sheep herders. He knows all about uh, tending sheep, and, and he's got a heart for these individuals and people. And so he's been protecting these villages against their enemies, you might want to say, and especially against uh, uh, these people that were coming and stealing sheep and, 
And, uh, and David and his men have been faithfully, again, watching over the flocks of different individuals, especially the shepherds and the sheep for a man by the name of Nabal. Nabal. And word reached David and his men that it was shearing time. It was shearing time. And it stands to reason that David thinks that uh, because of the careful protection that he and his men have provided, that it's only fair that they receive a tip. They receive some sort of remuneration. Uh, those of us who are, are, are waited on by wait, waiters and waitresses, we give, if we're kind of on the cheap side, we give about 10%. If we feel a little bit generous, you give 15 or 20%. And there was no written law that if you protected sheep herders and sheep from these uh, warring tribes and these peoples that you were supposed to give a tip, but it was an unwritten type of thing. And David expected some sort of remuneration from this wealthy sheep herder uh, by the name of Nabal. And look at what the Bible specifically says about this man in verse 25, uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter um, 25. Look at it with me one more time. It says, A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing at Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And notice what we read about her. She was intelligent and a beautiful woman, but her husband was a Kaobite, and he was surly and mean in his dealings. The first thing we hear and understand and read about this particular man is that he's he's wealthy. You know, a thousand goats, three thousand sheep. Uh, he's a he's a, a sheep baron, you might want to say of that day. He's got all kinds of money. I mean, he's a he's a rich person. In fact, the Hebrew word for heavy, heavy means the guy was absolutely loaded. He has tons of money. It would be like a, a Texas cattle baron, you might want to say today. Uh, furthermore, this particular passage of scripture tells us that the man was harsh. He was mean. Uh, literally, in the original language, it means that he was he was stubborn. Uh, he was belligerent. And furthermore, he had evil dealings. That means he was dishonest. Now you think about it. Dishonest, evil dealings, that's quite a combination. Not only was he demanding and deceptive and unfair, but he was hard to get along with. And he was a cheat and he was stingy. And on top of that, he was an atheist, an atheist. Because that's what the context tells us. He was, a, he was not a believer in God and uh, he was far from it. Now in my mind's eye, when I picture Nabal, I picture one of those Louis L'Amour characters in one of those small towns. You know, the guy that runs the town. The guy that has the chokehold and all the money. The guy that wants to uh, keep the hold on the town. And the guy that will do anything, manipulate other people, whatever it may be, even murder, kill, whatever it may be, to hold on to his wealth. And just like in a Western novel, guess who Nabal is married to? He is married to a beautiful lady, inwardly and outwardly. And she has wonderful characteristics. She's wise, she's honest, she's straightforward. In fact, look at verse 3 again. It says that uh, she was, Abigail was intelligent and she was a beautiful woman. How come these characters always end up with these beautiful women? I don't understand it. But here is this surly guy who's a cheapskate and uh, who has terrible dealings with other people. 
and he's stingy, and he's an atheist on top of that, and he's married to a beautiful, gracious woman inwardly and outwardly. Literally translated, it says, Abigail had good understanding, she had great wisdom, and she had a beautiful form. Again, she was a lovely woman within, and she was a lovely woman without. And Abigail was wise. Her decisions made good sense. She was governed not by her emotions, but by good logical thinking. And if that wasn't good enough, she was very, very attractive. So on one side, imagine with me, on one side are 600 warriors, and, and, and David is leading these warriors, who had protected the flock of Nabal, and he expected some sort of remuneration. And on the other side is Nabal, who is a wealthy livestock owner who has all kinds of money and is conceited and is very self-centered and is very stingy. So all of a sudden now, it's shearing time. It's shearing time. David finds out about it. And we read in verses 5 through 8, look at it with me, that David sends 10 men. He sends 10 men and he tells them, go to Carmel, visit Nabal, greet him in my name, and tell him, now I have heard. I have heard that you have shears. Ask your young men, and they will tell you that we protected them. So please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, David didn't go to Nabal himself. David sends ten of his servants, uh, ten of his men, not servants, ten of his men, Perhaps he didn't want to intimidate man, uh, intimidate Nabal. Perhaps he didn't want to pull rank or whatever it may be. Instead, he sends a few of his men. He says, hey, gather up what he gives us, and uh, maybe he'll give us a load of lamb. Maybe he'll give us a few shekels. We'll take whatever he sends our way. But notice Nabal, this crooked and conceited and wealthy man, notice his response in verses 10 through 11. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to men who are coming from who knows where? This is a ploy to cover up his cheap skatism. Is that, is that a word? The stinginess. It's to cover up the stinginess. He knows who David is. He knows what David's all about. He knows what David's been doing, but he acts like this is David's is some sort of upstart. David is not an upstart. He has married the king's daughter. He has killed Goliath. He has all these warriors, and he's pretending like he doesn't know who David is. He's just trying to hide, you might want to say, the fact that he's conceited and that he's a, a cheapskate. Now, this guy is really gracious, isn't he? He's really generous, is he? Isn't he? No, he isn't. Notice how many times he said, my, 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 I, me, mine. Now, here's where everything breaks loose. Hold on to your seats. This is David. This is our hero. This is the same guy who did not retaliate and seek revenge against the king, against Saul. This is David, who is a master of patience. Maybe the report hit David at a bad time. I don't know. Maybe David's friend, uh, David's out in the field and he's got a fire going and he can already taste those shish kebabs with the onions and with the green peppers and he can taste a little bit of that those roasted lamb. But this guy all of a sudden says these things and his men come back and they come empty-handed and they tell him exactly what Nabal did. And the Bible says his anger exploded into temporary insanity he got crazy look at verses 
12 and 13 with me. David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords. And David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Now I want to suggest to you that when you put on your sword and you have 400 men put on their swords and you're going to face some sort of livestock guy who is wealthy but only has a handful of servants, that's an overkill. Something's going on here. 400 men with swords on. Church, understand that uncontrolled anger can have terrible, terrible consequences. You often say things you regret. You often break things you don't wish that you were broke. You often do things you wish you did not do. And David is going to murder Nabal. There is no doubt about it. And this leads me to point number two I want to make this morning. Don't overreact to those feelings of anger. It's hard. It's difficult, especially if you grew up in an angry home and that was your model, a mother or father or a grandfather or grandparent or whatever it may be, an aunt or uncle, whoever you grew up with, especially if that's how they react. But you don't have to explode in anger. Don't overreact to your feelings of anger. It's hard, but take a moment. Be wise. Don't jump too quickly. Don't jump to conclusions. Restrain yourself from doing anything with haste. Put on the brakes. Slow down. Look at Proverbs 19.11, look at it. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offense. And the Bible says elsewhere, be slow to anger and be quick to listen. Now listen. Be slow to anger and be quick to listen. But the typical American in our world today, for whatever reason, we're getting short temper, short, more short tempers than ever before. I know it's true because I read all the studies. I read all the statistics, all the traffic jams that people are in, not in Grant County. But elsewhere, and life is so stressful, whatever it may be, did you know that it being slow to anger and quick to listen, people are often quick to anger and slow to listen. I'm going to explode. I get crazy. I'm going to turn all red. I'm just going to... What does the Bible say? Be slow to anger. And quick to listen. If you have to, take a long walk. If you have to, get away from the situation. You know, those things that they said, account to 100 or whatever it may be, those things work. You, you, remember, you remember the guy, you remember the old guy? He'd been married 60 plus years. And somebody asked him the secret to he, he and his wife, their marital bliss. You remember that? And the guy said, hey, when we first got married, we had this agreement. And she had something against me. Uh, she was just to let me have it. And if I had something against her, I was to take a long walk. And I guess you could say the secret to our marital bliss is I've largely led an outdoor life. And there's some merit to that. Don't overreact. It's hard, but take a moment. Be wise. Don't jump too quickly to conclusions. Restrain yourself from doing anything in haste. Put on the brakes. Be slow to anger. Be quick to listen. Not David. He's livid. You got 400 men. 
David is uh, completely overacting. You, you know, there's a saying that you can kill a cockroach with a shotgun. You can, you can kill a cockroach with a shotgun blast. It's true. You can kill that cockroach, but you can blow out the wall too at the same time. It's an overreaction. Nobody's going to put on a sword to have a discussion, much less by do, uh, bringing along 400 men with swords as well. Talk about an overkill. And David and his men, you could just see David. Man, he's, he's talking to himself. I can't believe that Nabal guy. I can't believe he did that to me. I just can't believe it. I can't believe it. And he's marching toward Nabal's place, and he's got 400 warriors behind him, and he doesn't care who he encounters. He's going to kill Nabal. He's going to kill all his servants. He's probably even going to kill his, uh, his wife, Abigail. He's livid. He's going to wipe this guy off the face of the earth. Now notice what happens. One of the servants, one of the servants of Nabal gets wind of what David is, is doing. And uh, what, what Nabal said to the ten men who represented David. And look at what he says in verses 14 through 17, chapter 25, 14 through, One of the servants told Nabal, Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he, he, he hurled insults at them. And yet these men noticed they were good to us. They did not mistreat us. In other words, they protected us. And the whole time we're out in the fields near, uh, near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were, there were a wall around us uh, while we were herding the sheep near them. Now think... Think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. And notice, he is such a wicked man that no one can even talk to him. Another translation said, he's such a worthless man, nobody can ever can even speak to him. And you can, you can see this character, this navel. He's egotistical. He's self-centered. He's a, he's a tightwad. He's not going to release any, any tip to David. He's not going to release any of his livestock. He's not going to send anything his way. And so the servant comes to Abigail and tells him what Nabal said to David's uh, men. And the servant said, David is coming to kill Nabal, and he's probably going to kill all the rest of the household. And Nabal is so dumb, he won't even listen. Can you please do something, Abigail? Abigail. Abigail. Very wise. Lovely within, lovely without. The Bible says she was a wise lady. She knows her husband's weaknesses, and in his weakest moment, Abigail did not fight. She protected. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor Ron? She could have ignored and let David come with all of his men and kill Nabal. He's a worthless man and he's a worthless husband. She knows that. She could have just said, let him have it. I don't care. He's not much of a husband. Now's my chance to get rid of this guy. But that's the way that a carnal person thinks, not a godly person. Instead, she chose to protect him. How gracious of her. How wise. How godly. And look at what she does in verses 18 and 19. Abigail lost no time. I love that. She lost no time. Time is of the essence. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin, and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on her donkey. Then she told her servants, go on ahead and I will 
follow you. But notice, she did not tell her husband Nabal. And this leads me to my third point I want to make this morning. In the face of hostilities, in the face of anger, in the face of open rage, please be a calming influence. Please be a calming influence. Be a mediator. Be a calming influence. Be a mediator in the face of angry situations. I can't believe this lady, Abigail. This lady by the name of Abigail, she ran interference for her stupid husband. Her husband was stupid. 200 loaves of bread, wine, sheep, grain, and she didn't even tell her husband about it. And some of the best help can come from a spouse who knows us better than anyone else, and they can give us constructive help, and they can give us an exhortation. But sometimes a spouse needs to act in favor of their husband or wife and not say a word sometimes. To approach her stupid husband would have been suicide for him, the household, and would have been suicide for her. He would never, ever, as stingy as he was, the type of man he was, he would never, ever let her bring those provisions to David on his behalf. What was Abigail doing? She was running interference. She was a peacemaker. And she literally saved Nabal's life and the household's life. Notice what else she does in verses 20 and 23. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there was David, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, It's been useless. Uh, all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert, so nothing uh, of his was missing. Now, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey. She bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Isn't that something? Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to the wicked man Nabal, her husband. He's just like his name. His name is fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and those who attend to harm my master uh, be like Nabal, and let this be a gift to you, brought to you by my master. Please, verse 28, please forgive your servant's offense. And she goes on. Now, I want you to understand here. When a person is a peacemaker, they often have to do these particular things that Abigail has to do. Did you notice the first thing is she prostrated herself. She prostrated herself. She humbled herself. And then she also exercised what I call tact. No yelling, no screaming, uh, no accusations, no defending. Did you know that in our age, civility is being lost? When you go down to a community meeting, often people would rather yell and scream at the representatives than to be articulate and to honor the position and to be tactful. Histrionic. We live in a histrionic age. 
an age that where civility has been lost. And yet we see this lady who prostrated herself and was very tactful. And if I could just say it this way, she was saying, we read, David, I know you're mad and I know you're upset and my husband is stupid. He's a fool. But you're a bigger man than this. God has called you for something else than to take innocent blood and anger. So please forgive my husband and receive these gifts. God has called you to be a bigger person than this. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. Did you know in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Put on the sandals of peace. And in your situation, in your home life, at the places that you work at, in our community, in, in church, wherever you may be, there's going to be conflict. It's not if, but it's when. It's not if, but it's when. I remember talking with a pastor a number of years ago in the Central Valley of California. And one day we were just talking, and, and he said, you know, I had the most wonderful uh, layperson in my church. I said, oh, yeah, tell me about him. He, he said, you know, he was a very simple man. By profession, he was a barber. But the whole community went to him because he was an excellent barber. But not only that, he loved people and he had a listening ear and he was a committed Christian man. And wherever he was at, wherever he was at, he just loved on people and he was a sweet, this is what he said, a sweet fragrance of peace. In any volatile situation, in the church, I could always count on him to be tactful. Tactful. To be able to say the right thing at the right time. I said, what happened to him? He said that he was with uh, two of his sons. And they were traveling in the Central Valley early in the morning in the Thule fog. It's, there's a lot of fog there in the winter time. It's thick, thick. And they were going pheasant hunting or some sort of bird hunting, duck hunting. And uh, somebody fell asleep at the wheel, turned it over, and killed him. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I, I've never seen another person who had the ability of peacemaking that he had. I'm almost finished let me close with this. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable. It's going to happen. Conflict, I'll say it again, conflict is inevitable. What we say and how we say it, 
how we say it is just as important of what we say. That's tact. How we say something is just as important of what we say. And people don't understand that. Because they allow their emotions to rule them and rule their mouth. What does it say? Slow to anger, quick to listen. Now, I want to suggest to you that the next conflict where you're an outside force coming into a situation, you have two alternatives. You have two alternatives. You have two buckets. There is a fire of conflict, let's say, and people are going out and it's escalating. The people, it's all escalating here. And what do you do with these two buckets? You have one bucket of gasoline. And you can pour gasoline on the fire and help it to escalate. Or the other bucket is what? Water. And you can help put it out. 